Good evening, folks, and welcome back on this Saturday, the 25th day of February 2023. I'm your host, Mark Hall, and as we've gotten used to of late, it's been quite a week, and certainly there's been more than a lot of smoke, and much of that has been poisoned of late, even though the Waystream media isn't about to tell you just how bad it really is. And since the week began and certainly continued with so much BS and propaganda being sold to a gullible public as news, let's start with some of the stories that may have been intended to be covered up by the smokescreen. Like this one, early on from the UK's Daily Mail, which says Oakland has gone dark as a fire ripped through the PG&E substation there, following a series of targeted attacks all across the United States. At the nearby airport, flights are grounded, 9,000 residents have been plunged into darkness, and oh yeah, the officials have launched an investigation. Don't hold your breath on that one. Meanwhile, says the story, the cause of the outage is unknown at this time. The incident, though, comes as a series of substations across the United States have been targeted by, as as the Daily Mail puts it, individuals looking to wreak havoc on the power system. What do you bet that if they were gay enough, they'd be candidates for cabinet position? Trouble is, it's not just the power system. We've seen it in the food system, and obviously when it comes to man-made environmental disasters. Arguably, at least in part, by a whole lot of invaders that continue to stream across the open southern border and join up with their cells all over the United States to evidently do things that we've not only seen, but... Should probably, if we're paying attention, can expect to see a whole lot more of coming up. For example, courtesy of J.D. Hayes and Natural News, trains carrying hazardous materials continue to derail around the country. And it does certainly beg the question, is the U.S. under attack? For example, after East Palestine and the disaster there, there was South Carolina and then Texas. The latest train to jump the tracks was in Michigan, again operated by Norfolk Southern, the same one that did the dirty deed outside East Palestine, Ohio, which, after the idiocy that followed, may have resulted in the biggest environmental catastrophe in U.S. history. But this time, Van Buren Township police officials tell locals there's no evidence of exposed hazardous materials, as no train cars containing hazardous materials were compromised. Even so, folks, given the disclaimers that we saw that were outright lies here in the last couple of weeks, maybe the prudent course is to say, hmm, their lips are moving, aren't they? And as if that wasn't bad enough, said Michigan's Representative Debbie Dingell, confirming the derailment, we've been in touch with relevant federal authorities, like the EPA, and they're dispatching a team to ensure public safety. So, yes, folks, be afraid, be very afraid, or at least get out of Dodge until you know from actual reliable sources that they don't intend to kill you. Well, at least that they don't intend to kill you with this accident. Earlier this week in Arizona, there was a truck carrying nitric acid suddenly lost control and overturned, spilling dangerous contents all over the road. First responders were overwhelmed by the smell of toxic acid, which could be felt several miles away, said authorities. And as toxic incidents continue to mount, more and more people are rightfully more and more skeptical. We'll follow that up with this story from the Gateway Pundit, originally from the Western Journal, where the Norfolk Southern Railroad's own actions arguably worsened that train wreck that ignited the toxic chain of disastrous events. It does take politicians to truly turn it into a catastrophe in uh, East Palestine, Ohio. But according to employees and a lawsuit against the railroad, they're saying the size of the train, 9,300 feet long, 18,000 tons and 151 cars, was in fact a factor in the accident, according to a report from CBS that didn't name the employees interviewed. They also 
also said the train had experienced trouble before the derailment. That confirms other reports, folks. And they said the train, which started its journey in Madison, Illinois, had broken down at least once before the fatal Ohio accident. <clears throat> According to CBS, it was simply too long, said one of the employees. We shouldn't be running trains 150 cars long. There should be limitations to the weight and length of the trains. And in this case, had the train not been 18,000 tons, it's very likely at least some of the effects of the derailment would have been mitigated, said one employee to CBS. Here's the quote that really ought to raise some eyebrows. The workers are exhausted. Times for car inspections have been drastically cut, and there are no regulations on the size of these trains, said another employee. Said Jared Cassidy, National Legislative Director for One Union representing Norfolk Southern employees, there's a good chance the car that derailed had not been properly inspected for some time. You combine that with the added length and tonnage, plus the fact that it had all this hazardous material, and this, he said, was predictable. If nothing changes, it'll happen again, he said, which arguably almost makes it sound like a beta test. But this line from the lawsuit pretty well nails what we've learned since the uh, disaster. Train 32N should never have been operated in such a reckless manner that its wheel bearings would fail and cause derailment of a train containing highly toxic and combustible substances. Even after derailment, it says, the integrity of cars containing highly toxic and combustible substances should not have been breached, and emergency pressure valves should have functioned as designed. Nevertheless, Norfolk Southern layered on yet more failures once it found its derailed train at imminent risk of catastrophic detonation. Evidently, with the approval of so-called authorities, your host notes here, Norfolk Southern, it continues, blew holes in its vinyl chloride cars and dumped 1,109,400 pounds of cancer-causing vinyl chloride directly into the environment, unquote. And then, folks, they lit it off. And added this little factoid to put the numbers in perspective, Norfolk Southern discharged more cancer-causing vinyl chloride into the environment in the course of one week than all other industrial emitters combined did in the course of a year. Noting, of course, that vinyl chloride, when you set it on fire, creates the deadly World War I poison gas known as phosgene, which has been banned ever since. And note, folks, this story doesn't even mention perhaps the most hazardous element here, dioxin. Perhaps because it's harder to blame Norfolk Southern alone for that part of the chemical equation. Which brings us finally to the story the Waste Stream really does want you to focus on. The popular, dynamic, vitally intelligent, and totally capable fake president of the United States, or at least his body double, maybe all of them, got on a plane at an early hour, even before his nanny's usually up, and went to Europe. Well, as it turns out, not just Europe, but Ukraine, where he met with the comedian-turned-puppet dictator and essentially made it clear that the people in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York can literally go to hell, while he makes sure that there are plenty of U.S. weapons being shipped to the World War III front. Says Zero Hedge's summary, the Biden Fuhrer departed from Joint Base Andrews in Prince George County, Maryland, early Sunday morning, stopping at Ramstein Air Base in Germany before making an unannounced visit to Ukraine on Monday morning. Got to get that 10% for the big guy. The visit comes just ahead of the one-year anniversary of Russia's offensive in Ukraine. And this as Russia prepares for another massive spring offensive. Western countries, it says, are racing to flood Ukraine with more money, more money, more money, and, of course, new weaponry, including main battle tanks, armored vehicles, and lots of missile shells and artillery. But here's the quote du jour. Said the Biden Fuhrer, or at least somebody reading the teleprompter for him, I thought it was critical that there not be any doubt, none whatsoever, about U.S. support for Ukraine in the war. And listen to this and ponder the significance, folks. I'm here to show our unwavering support for that nation's independence, sovereignty, and territorial integrity. As for you folks in Ohio and everybody downwind, ha, 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 ha. 
And now, given all that as a backdrop, this story, also courtesy of the Gateway Pundit via Alicia Powell, also seems to be particularly interesting. A man who lives nine miles away from where that Norfolk Southern train carrying toxic chemicals derailed in eastern Ohio, after which everything was set on fire to really make it a mess, has reached out to the Gateway Pundit to sound the alarm on a bunch of bizarre coincidences that continue to pile up surrounding that uh, <clears throat> incident. Bob Moore, 70-year-old farmer and longtime resident of East Palestine, initially ignored local news reports, it says, urging residents to sign up for what was called My ID and get their new biometric tracking device, listen to this, that provides first responders with updates about an individual's health conditions amid an emergency or, quote, major disaster. But the suspicious timing of the government's oh-so-handy distribution of this health-monitoring digital ID exactly one week before the so-called disaster warrants answers, said Moore to TGP in an exclusive interview. They got pictures here of all the wonderful goodies that the uh, soon-to-be victims of the biggest ecological catastrophe in American history were uh, gifted with just in time, said Moore. It was exactly a week before the derailment happened. People were asked to go to the local fire department in downtown East Palestine to get that My ID, whereupon they began monitoring your physical activity, your heart rate, your respiration, anything you might be exposed to. I see this, he said, as the kind of sensor you might put on an astronaut or an athlete that you wanted to track to see how he'd react to stress or being winded, or in this instance, chemical exposure. It is a monitoring device. Ohio local affiliate WKBN announced on January 26 that East Palestine would be making, quote, an important medical device available to all 4,700 residents starting just three days later. It's a medical information system that helps first responders provide care that, <laughs> hey, you might need sooner than you think. Moritz says was gassed by the rollout of this new digital ID surveillance program and agitated by the prospect that residents in his town would again line up to be guinea pigs following first the tyrannical vaccine mandates the nation had already complied with like good little slaves. And he said this, I completely ignored that. But the way the media played it up, it was like East Palestine was a test town that they'd volunteered to be part of, that they were chosen, and were going to implement it right after January 23rd. I do find that odd, he said. I find it a coincidence that we're just having coincidences pile up around here. These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. Move along. Move along. And that's not all. Remember, just days before the alleged accident, the Center for Death and Control updated their profile of vinyl chloride, removing a section on how the chemical affects children and multiplying what they decreed to be the deadly level by a factor of 1,000. For his part, Moore is among many at this point questioning whether the latest train derailment, whoops, okay, not the latest, just the biggest so far. An ongoing destruction of things like the U.S. food and energy supplies, as well as pandemic simulations, are all part of a scheme to destroy the United States as the Biden-Fuhrer regime continues to institute the globalist Great Reset Agenda. It makes your mind wander, he said. Food factories, egg farms, and these types of disasters compounding. It appears that these bracelets are a result of that or some other way to monitor whether this is really just a coordinated test town or not. The fact that the program exists indicates that somebody somewhere knows something and wants to get data. Every piece of data that the government collects, DARPA, large corporations, multinational corporations collect, has always been and can always be turned against the citizen. Everything is vulnerable to weaponization, and the most sacred thing in any weaponization, said the 70-year-old farmer, is data. And he added, anyone not suspicious of medicine at this point is a fool.
Moore noted that he and his wife, too, were recruited to be extras in the recent predictive programming film called White Noise that featured a train disaster in that same little small town, but they declined it. Here's an item that harkens back to that subject of medicine and the uh, whores who make the honest women that sell their bodies just for sex look really, really full of integrity by comparison. And as I say that, folks, I will harken back to the Torah portion this weekend called Mishpatim. Yes, the Bible is very critical of whoring and uh, sex for sale, but that's nothing compared to what it says about those who commit premeditated murder or who kidnap people and sell them into slavery or, as we're seeing a lot of late, far worse. Which brings me to one recent story about one such sellout. At least in this case, he isn't injecting kids with poison. The so-called White House official physician, who, following a rigorous physical exam last week, huh? evidently read his cue card and claimed that he found that the Biden Fuhrer, quote, remains a healthy, vigorous 80-year-old male and is fit for duty. <laughs> and by the way, he gets to keep his job for another year which led the former White House physician, Ronnie Jackson, to comment, even if a bit acerbically. We learned nothing, he tweeted from Biden's physical exam. How bad is his cognitive issue? Is he on any drugs to cover up his mental decline? This exam was a joke, he said, a cover-up. And he added, why on earth didn't Biden get a cognitive exam? And for crying out loud, folks, Trump had one. Why didn't Biden get one? His ability to think and reason said the physician is gone. He should not be president. And that, folks, is arguably one of the biggest understatements in, uh, well, the last 24 hours or so. But Dr. Jackson was just getting started. The media, he continued, is silent about the lack, and he puts it all in caps because that's correct, of a cognitive exam for Biden. The American people want to know this information, and the media is doing nothing. Well, they're doing worse than nothing. They're fawning over the senile, incompetent buffoon. And do you remember, he said, when the media literally went ballistic wanting Trump to have a cognitive exam? Where are they today with Biden? Silence. And as Dr. Jackson put it, they're letting this incompetent buffoon drive our country over a cliff. Unquote. And if there's any good news in this thing at all, it's that a recent Harvard Caps Harris poll found that fully 57% of Americans now aren't as stupid as the Biden Fuhrer believes they are. And they have doubts, it says, about the mental fitness of the unelected hair sniffer. But wait, there are other stories today about medical cover-ups as well. This one comes courtesy of Vox Day. And the substack for Jessica Rose, who suggests that the medical systems in North America, well, at least in communist Canada, may actually be deleting medical records of individuals at hospitals suffering what are called AEs, or adverse events. And the story originates at Died Suddenly News, where a respondent reports that a co-worker got the cupcake. I guess that's a code word for, you know what, the Zyklon B injection, because... Uh, if they don't say it that way, the information gets suppressed, banned, and deep-sixed. Anyway, the co-worker got the cupcake because of pressure at work, and I think he was drinking the Kool-Aid. A while after having so-called cupcake, his wife found him on the kitchen floor, after which he was rushed to the hospital, where he spent two days in emergency and one day in the cardiac ward due to what was called a cardiac event, after which he was diagnosed with myocarditis. When he asked the cardiologist if he should get a second cupcake, the doctor's response was, oh, you may as well, the damage is already been done. So he got it, and he was what, the, what kind of idiot even asks a question like that? And then what kind of idiot goes ahead and does it? Well, he got it, and he was bedridden for quite some time before finally returning to work under modified duty. Today, though, says the respondent, my co-worker dropped the bombshell. On the one-year anniversary of his cardiac event, he had a follow-up appointment with that same cardiologist, who, after reviewing the test results, asked the man a strange question. 
What are you doing here? The co-worker was surprised, and he answered, well, I'm here for my one-year follow-up. The so-called doctor then told the co-worker that he needed to show him something. He turned the screen he was looking at around toward my co-worker and then said, one-year follow-up to what? There was nothing on file about my co-worker ever being admitted to the hospital after the uh, cupcake. Do you have any paperwork, said the doctor. Well, yeah, said the co-worker. I have my discharge papers. Well, keep them. And this is the first decent advice that idiot ever gave the guy. You're the fifth patient of mine whose admission records have been removed. The doctor complained to Alberta Health Services and is now, say it with me, folks, receiving disciplinary action. Alberta Health Services, or AHS, it says, is deleting records of adverse reactions to the, um, cupcakes. Yeah, tell me we're shocked. Well, folks, after that last story, I almost feel like this one is piling on, but we certainly need to hear it. The end of American sovereignty, says another piece, courtesy of Colin Leinbarger at the Gateway Pundit. The Biden Fuhrer and the regime that has replaced the American government has negotiated what they call, is it really, a legally binding deal to give the China-backed World Health Organization, sick full authority over U.S. pandemic policies. And no, we don't need no stinking Senate approval, because it's not a treaty, you know. It's just something masquerading as law. This concerns a bombshell report from the Epoch Times over the weekend, revealing that the regime is attempting to surrender American sovereignty to who? And give them full control, as if you didn't know it was coming, over future pandemic policy. Yeah, the Gateway Pundit says they've reported extensively on those negotiations between the regime and who for quite some time now, at least a year. TGP's Alicia Powell exclusively revealed that Biden's Health and Human Services, SIC, department has recently submitted amendments to, quote, strengthen WHO preparedness and response to health emergencies. This and a so-called reform to international health regulations of 2005, which delegate to the international body of unelected bureaucrats even more authority to define what constitutes a pandemic, when it's in progress, and what they get to do to you as a result of their very own declaration. Claims the story, the WHO's INB, or Intergovernmental Negotiating Body, has scheduled a meeting for next week, February 27th, so members can work out the final terms and sign off on the abomination. And once America officially signs the agreement, come on now, wait a second, what the heck does that mean? In a land where there is no such thing as law anymore, and who has the authority? Nobody. But that doesn't mean they don't claim that you, the peons, are subject to whatever they decree regardless. Anyway, we will be completely at the mercy, it says, of the globalist organization that helped the Chinese Communist Party cover up the original Fauci flu and COVID-19 bioweapon outbreak in Wuhan. The draft claims that WHO will be given the power to declare and manage any global pandemic they feel like, and once such a health emergency is declared, all the signatories of this abomination, which is at least intended to include the once free United States, must submit Octung to the authority of WHO, which includes treatments, lockdowns, vaccine mandates, government surveillance, and any other thing they blankety-blank and will decide that the peons deserve and will get, whether they like it or not. And maybe you're starting to think what happened in Ohio was bad. Now, this part, at least, folks, is uh, undeniable. Chillingly, the Biden regime doesn't need to submit this agreement for Senate approval because they're not going to call it an official treaty, despite the claim that it has the full force of law or what now passes for it anyway. Yeah, it's obviously unconstitutional. 
But it's not like we haven't seen it before. And furthermore, they note, and I would say correctly, counting on any courts, especially federal courts, to save us is arguably beyond foolhardy. I mean, really, can you put the mRNA back in the needle or the dioxin back in the train car? This thing goes on at great length, describing various so-called precedents, and you get the idea. But the point is, once they have you fully disarmed, exactly what are you going to be able to do about whatever they decide to claim is now the law of, uh, well, no longer the land, but the law of whatever abyss a once-free country has descended into. Here's another item that might sound like it's of a different subject, but I tend to think not. This comes from Tyler Durden and Zero Hedge, but also via the Daily Mail in the UK, which has reported that some of the most respected TV shows in the UK, along with movies and works of literature, have now all been included in a list of works that could potentially encourage far-right sympathies. What does that mean? Anything that will let you see through the uh, big lie that you're being force-fed. All of this compiled by a taxpayer-funded and government-led counter-terrorism program, SIC, called PREVENT. And as the Daily Mail reports, some of the greatest works by some of the world's greatest writers have been included as examples of warning signs of potential extremism, including Chaucer, Milton, Tennyson, Tolkien, Shakespeare, Huxley, and Orwell, of course, Kipling, and, oh yeah, let's not forget Edmund Burke. Oh, wait a minute, folks. I'll bet you not one high school graduate in the last 20 years and 50 could tell you who Edmund Burke even was. Prevent, it says, is a key part of the UK's so-called counterterrorism strategy, being used as a means to safeguard against, get this, vulnerable people being drawn into criminal behavior, unquote. And no wonder they want to outlaw Orwell, because that's exactly what he warned about. And Prevent goes on to say that various works of fiction are now key texts for, quote, white nationalist supremacists. And after obtaining the full list, author Douglas Murray discovered that one of his books had been given a red flag by Prevent, and he wrote in The Spectator, a number of books are being singled out, the possession or reading of which could point to severe wrongthink and, therefore, potential radicalization. Oh, good grief. I'm into World War III. In a much-anticipated speech that was scheduled for Tuesday, President Vladimir Putin said he is suspending Russia's participation in the new START nuclear treaty with the United States. And as Reuters put it, President Vladimir Putin on Tuesday suspended Russian participation in the last remaining nuclear arms control treaty with the United States, warning Washington that Russia had put new ground-based strategic nuclear weapons on combat duty. And this just over a year after Moscow signed on to a five-year extension. And after, in August, the U.S. accused Russia of violating the treaty, disallowing U.S. on-site inspections under stipulations. In supposed response, Washington halted the ability of Russian inspectors to do the same on American soil. After which, Putin said no one should be under the illusion that global strategic parity can be violated. Speaking in his State of the Nation address, Putin also said Russia should stand ready to resume nuclear weapons testing if the U.S. does so, a move that would end the global ban on nuclear weapons tests in place since the Cold War. While meanwhile, Hal Turner's radio show points to a billboard that's been up for several days in Moscow that says in Russian, preparing for historic day, February 21, 2023. No turning back. And interestingly, he observes, Never before in the history of Russia has the government ordered the carrying of a presidential speech live on every TV and radio station in the country, because that country has 12 time zones and is so huge that government allowed TV and radio to cover past speeches as appropriate for each time zone, but not this time. Which kind of begs the question, is there more here? And remember, the Biden Fuhrer, or at least his body double, 
is in Europe pretending to dance without the puppet strings being so obviously visible. At least, folks, I guess we do have to say the good news is we've made it to the weekend and no mushroom clouds on the horizon so far. But that doesn't mean that the dioxin clouds ultimately might not end up being just as deadly. And on that score, I do think this related story is kind of interesting. Even CNN is admitting, hmm, this does look a lot like theater. The air raid sirens go off and the two puppets walk together bravely, defying the urge to run for safety. Yeah, sure. Listen to how Alex Marquardt put it. Um, I've been here for the past five days. I have not heard any explosions. I have not heard any air sirens until about half an hour ago, right when uh, President Biden was in the center of Kiev, as, as Clarissa was, was just mentioning. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Well, at least the old Wizard of Oz was, by comparison anyway, benevolent and downright brilliant. We'll be right back. Back now to the second segment for this evening. I'm your host, Mark Hall, and let's pick it up this time around with Deja Vu all over again. Cops in Arkansas have ruled that the death of a Clinton aide, and you thought maybe they were all gone by now, but almost all of them are, who was linked to Jeffrey Epstein, found shot and then tied to a tree with an electrical cord, is, say it with me, folks, what else? An Arkansas, despite no sign of an actual weapon. Bill Clinton's special advisor, Mark Middleton, who signed Jeffrey Epstein into the White House a number of times, supposedly, they say, killed himself in May 2022. According to the police report from Perryville, Arkansas, Middleton was found with a gunshot wound to his chest and an extension cord tied around his neck attached to a tree. The grisly scene has finally been revealed more than nine months after he, yeah, say it with me, folks, committed Arkansas. But, says the Daily Mail's coverage, the sheriff's report into Mark Middleton's suspicious death raises more questions than answers, as it claims that his death was ruled a suicide, but the weapon that killed him is nowhere to be found. Takes a while, I guess, to dispose of it properly and make sure that the police reports don't leave any, uh, well, you know, more than already suspicious gaps. Makes you want to ask, where's Jocelyn Elders when Bill and Hitlery really need her? Months and months and months later, a judge has finally ruled that the details of the so-called suicide could be released, but no photographs. And that, at least, sounds really familiar. These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. Move along. Move along. Okay, well, here's the update that came out a bit later. Amazing, isn't it, how certain things, especially when they have to do with Arkansas, just don't seem to make the waste stream coverage. Like the UK's Daily Mail, but of course it doesn't show up in the criminally negligent other networks at all. In this case, what came out, finally, was that Mark Middleton, special advisor to the rapist president, who signed the infamous pedophile Jeffrey Epstein, who, by the way, didn't hang himself, into the White House around 17 times, 
committed arcanicide last May. And you know what that means. It was ruled a suicide, even though the actual facts seem to cause a kind of a stench to be left surrounding that claim. And as TGP's Christina Layla puts it, here's the rest of the story. At first, no details of Middleton's Aham Arkansas were disclosed, but the case was blown wide open after a FOIA request by Radar Online revealed that the former Clinton advisor was found hanging from a tree, okay, that part we'd heard, by an extension cord, that part we'd heard, with a gunshot to the chest. No, turns out, get this, folks, here's the part that was missing. It was a shotgun blast to his chest. And that weapon was never found on the 1,100-acre Perryville farm connected to Bill Clinton. Who could have thought it? So we're supposed to believe that after Middleton managed to hang himself from a tree by an extension cord, he somehow got a shotgun and blew a hole in his own chest and then threw that shotgun so far away that it's never been found. Oh, yeah, folks, no wonder people have a little bit of suspicion concerning the claim that this was yet another suicide. (laughs) And the word Arkansas is ever so apropos here. Oh, and get this. The story claims that there are a lot of people upset about, quote, the unsubstantiated conspiracy theories spreading online about the death. Maybe if they didn't try to hide the death for months and then try to get us to believe unmitigated BS instead of whatever it was that actually happened, there wouldn't be so many people smelling an obvious rat. Especially when it comes to Bill and Hitlery, when it's such a familiar scent. But in the interest of full disclosure, I do have to ask it, especially since dead men tell no tales... What was it that might have otherwise come out that Mark Middleton knew back in the middle of last year? Well, here's something else that's been covered up, arguably far more important even than the suspicious and multitudinous deaths of people that committed various forms of Arkansas, so closely connected to the traitorous former president and his traitorous wife, who never did get what she was promised, but still claims she should have been made dictator. Well, one thing's for sure, folks. The acts of war against the American people continue and actually have accelerated, and so has the cover-up. I'm talking, of course, about the most recent and arguably deadly attack, the chemical equivalent of a weapon of mass destruction dropped in eastern Ohio on East Palestine and ultimately contaminating the entire Ohio River Basin and everything that it drains into and everything downwind of it, too, which is a whole lot of farmland, animals, and people. Well, on Wednesday, although you wouldn't know it from most of the waste stream coverage, President Donald Trump showed up to visit East Palestine, and just ahead of his arrival, pallets of water and food were passed out to residents who showed up in mass. As a matter of fact, far more than have showed up to see the fake president the entire time he's been the fake president. Trump gave a speech, the Daily Mail at least covered it, although they made a big deal about the fact that he bought a whole bunch of food from McDonald's to hand out as well. At least, it's not like we didn't already know health food certainly isn't his forte. And while a lot of his folks may not think much of McDonald's as food, do have to admit, at least it's healthier for them than what the government has been giving them, whether they like it or not. President Trump addressed the people who turned out in mass and told them they're victims of betrayal by the Biden Fuhrer and the federal government. And he said that it was his visit that finally sparked at least some of those folks to act, to pretend to act anyway, and take a tour of the toxic train derailment site on Wednesday. Clearly, the crowd was furious at the lack of action from the White House. Nineteen days after the disaster in Ohio, wrote the Daily Mail, hundreds of people lined the streets waving MAGA flags and chanting, No More Joe, to greet the president after he landed at the community on his renovated Trump Force One jet, where he praised the response from local law enforcement, the strength and courage of the residents, and said, You are not forgotten. Ask what message he had for the pretender-in-chief. Trump said, Get over here. 
And interestingly, with the arguable exception of Tucker Carlson, Fox News paid little or no attention to the Trump visit, a lot like the Biden fuel regime is trying to do to the entire Ohio River Basin. The Gateway Pundit's coverage notes that Joe Biden traveled to Ukraine this week after announcing the U.S. would pay for Ukrainian pensions, but has ignored the people in Ohio and Pennsylvania and basically everybody else that's going to be affected by this abomination nationwide who've been exposed to toxic chemicals, including not just phosgene, but as we now know, one of the most deadly poisons known to man, dioxin. Wrote Jim Hoft, if you were watching the Fox News channel on Wednesday, you likely missed Trump's visit to East Palestine because there was no major reporting on the visit. Fox, though, finally did run a segment after he left town. Meanwhile, they aired clips from Tim Scott's speech in Iowa. And you do have to ask, uh, gee, who and why? Fox said the Gateway Pundit is not even trying to hide their blackout on Trump. Wrote the Spectator concerning the debacle, it's now well established that Fox News, the American media behemoth, is no longer on the Trump train. Trump World's union with Fox World has never been altogether easy, and ever since that fateful rigged election, I put that word in there, the author didn't, in November 2020, it's fallen apart. Trump has despised Fox for, as many see it, helping Biden steal the election. And the top brass at so-called Fox News have sought to distance themselves from the Trump movement and what they regard as increasingly toxic politics. And now, folks, the irony of that terminology just really ought to leap out at you. But what's not been made entirely clear, they say, is the extent of the breakup. One senior Fox figure has let slip, though, that Donald Trump is effectively banned from appearing on Fox News at present, and he hasn't been seen on the main channel since he declared his candidacy for the 2024 presidential election back in November. And other Fox sources have confirmed there is a reason Donald is not appearing on their network. Although they claim the network would never apply a ban on any presidential candidate. Because, as one of them put it, Rupert, meaning Rupert Murdoch, doesn't want him to win. <laughs> and just think about this, folks. If the election rigging continues, and there's no indication that anything on that score has changed, there's no way anybody that the deep state doesn't want in there is ever going to get to be dictator. Here's a related story, at least it's related to the nuking of Ohio. Last week, the Gateway Pundit reported the train derailment in East Palestine, February 3rd, appeared to have an axle on fire. Turns out it was on fire for at least 43 minutes prior to the derailment. And this from NTSB video. They say it was surveillance video from a residence along the tracks, which the Gateway Pundit says they can now report based on a photo the source tells them is the derailed train. The axles were seen to be on fire as early as 8.13 p.m., about 43 minutes before the reported derailment at 8.54 p.m. And again, they note, the derailment was thought to have been caused by a wheel-bearing failure, as the NTSB has reported. Which does, they note, raise serious questions about existing checks for catastrophic failures that cause major catastrophes like this. There are reportedly hot box detectors placed periodically along the rails to check temperatures of critical components, including wheels and axles. But how long, they ask, were the axles on fire in their entirety? Was the sensor properly functioning? Or, you do have to ask, could there have been some chicanery going on? In any case, when was the crew alerted to the malfunction and what actions were taken? Although I guess ultimately we know the answer to that one. Here's a so-called shocker that really shouldn't shock anybody. Courtesy of Tyler Durden and Zero Hedge, one month after the first of the fourth quarter GDP estimates surprised analysts to the upside. Oh, just in time for all the hoopla leading up to the State of the Union message. Who could have thought it? It came in at 2.9% instead of the expected 2.6% number. Well, moments ago, they say, things gradually reverted to normalcy for a lying Biden-fewer regime. 
And it's not like they haven't seen their fair share of grossly manipulated economic data. This time, the BEA, or the Bureau of Economic Analysis, reported in their second estimate of fourth quarter GDP that the economy actually grew well, pretty much as expected. They revised the GDP print down to 2.68% instead of the aforementioned earlier, and now we know it, bogus claim. The fourth quarter increase in real GDP reflected increases in things like inventory investment, consumer spending, business investment, FedGov spending, and state and local government spending that were partly offset by decreases in housing investment, exports, imports. I guess you might say things besides government spending that people actually need to live. Oh yeah, and let's not forget inflation was a lot hotter than expected too. Imagine that which further impacted the real numbers, or at least the numbers they claim this time around are real. And even as they revised GDP lower, the BEA says Zero Hedge finally admitted that the U.S. consumer might be getting tapped out. But what really spooked futures markets was the BEA's sharp upward revision to the GDP price index and core PCE, which unexpectedly, at least some claim, came in red hot. The GDP price index was 3.9%, well above the 3.5% consensus estimate. And core PCE, quarter over quarter, was up 4.3%, also well above estimates. And from the food insecurity front, we have this belated bit of news concerning Dole Food Company, one of the biggest producers and distributors of fresh fruits and vegetables in North America. An alarming report that actually came out February 10th, at least to Dole, but uh, didn't get revealed. And ironically, folks, it was by CNN this week. Says, quote, Dole Food Company is in the midst of a cyber attack and they've subsequently shut down our systems throughout North America. This from Emmanuel Lazopoulos, senior VP at Dole's Fresh Vegetables Division in a February 10th memo. And Dole sent the memo to supermarkets after customers complained about all kinds of prepackaged salads, blends, kits, and ready-to-eat and so forth being out of stock. William Goldfield, spokesperson for Dole, confirmed a ransomware incident in a statement released on the company's website Wednesday. They've notified law enforcement, and they're cooperating with the investigation. Although it's not clear how long the company has had to shutter production, whether they paid a ransom to the hackers or when things might get back to uh, whatever constitutes the new normal. Here's an irony, too. The FBI has warned the food plants of the formerly free American states to be alert for ransomware attacks since last year. Here's a quick follow-up and related story. Remember how wonderful the biden fuhrer economy is, or so they claimed? Initial jobless claims says Zero Hedge continue to hover bullishly around the 200,000 mark, despite ongoing news of mass layoffs and severance, now dropping to four-week lows, and bottom line, the number of Americans on jobless benefits hovers near one-year highs. And of course, that means they're close to historic highs. Notwithstanding little trivialities like the pandemic and uh, planned shutdowns of most of the country. As Tyler Durden summarizes it for Zero Hedge, it seems that the transmission mechanism from Fed rates to the real economy is broken. Or at least the delay, the lag in other words, is unprecedented. We get another economic warning from Federal Express, where leaders representing the Federal Express Airline Pilots Association have unanimously passed a resolution authorizing a strike vote last Wednesday. This according to a statement from the union, although a date for the vote hasn't been mentioned yet. And the union says no future talks are planned because labor agreement negotiations have stalled. Still, a strike would only happen if negotiations break down and Big Brother's mediators authorize a walkout after the parties exhaust the required procedures of the Railway Labor Act.
All kinds of cooling off periods and other bureaucratic stuff stand in the way, but still, notes the Zero Hedge summary, pilots have been negotiating new labor contracts with FedEx execs since May of 2021, including expedited federal mediation with NMB. And according to a statement from the pilots, FedEx has failed to acknowledge their contributions and FedEx pilots are prepared to take this fight to the company. And the pilots warned this announcement should also alert FedEx customers that should the pilots be unable to successfully conclude negotiations, they need to be planning alternative means. In other words, things are going to get really dicey when it comes to delivering packages in the event pilots must strike. Concludes Zero has just imagined the logistical nightmare that a FedEx strike, on top of all the other stuff we've already seen, would cause. Let's just hope and pray it doesn't happen. Shifting gears now. Here's a fun one. Another one of those tip of the iceberg stories. Last week it begins, courtesy of the Gateway Pundit. They reported on a press conference concerning the arrest of one Lodi City Council member in California named Shakir Khan. And the San Joaquin Sheriff discovered the election crimes while serving a search warrant for those non-election-relating findings about Khan's businesses, or whatever you want to call them, in the city. Casey Irie reported that Khan is accused of stashing, quote, 41 ballots at his home. Investigators say he also registered 23 people to vote at his home and that his email and phone number were used to register 47 others. Body cam footage showed voters telling detectives how Khan allegedly pressured them to vote for him and how he allegedly falsified voter registration documents. Turns out the sheriff rolled out some other statistics, too. 93 people they found registered with a birth date of 1850. 232 registered at local prisons. Over 4,100 voters registered over the age of 90, and that's funny because there's only 10,000 or so of them, over 80 in the entire county. Hmm. 125 registered as a nonprofit NGO or business. 300 voters had no first name. There were at least 110 potential double voters, and you get the idea. Even one named Jesus Christ. And would you believe, folks, this isn't the only jurisdiction where discrepancies like that seem to be turning up like rats in the White House basement. Now, the uh, Gateway Pundit story ends with this interesting comment. Many concerned Americans, they say, have taken these types of voter roll analyses into their own hands and made incredible discoveries similar to those that have been discovered and disclosed above. California, however, only releases its voter rolls to candidates and political parties. In other words, those with an axe to grind and an insider connection. Disclosing the data to outsiders, they note, can lead to, guess what, prosecution. But hey, folks, isn't it comforting to know that the Biden Fuhrer team is on the job? And we have that amazing, clearly overqualified Secretary of Transportation who doesn't really know anything about flying, much less airplanes or getting products to people that want them, but could probably tell that pilot's union all about chest feeding. Next item, a little bit of good news, first from the economic front, where Vermont seeks to become the 44th state now to roll back a sales tax on actual honest weights and measures. This says the piece from J.P. Cortez at GoldEagle.com on the heels of overwhelming votes to remove taxes from all purchases of precious metals in Mississippi. Now, Vermont legislators have introduced a similar measure to curtail the controversial tax in that state. HB 295 would cancel sales taxes on larger size purchases of, quote, rare coins of numismatic value, gold or silver bullion or coins, or gold or silver tender of any nation traded and sold according to its value as a precious metal. And this follows action over the last two years alone, where the governors of Alabama, Ohio, Arkansas, Tennessee, and Virginia have each signed similar legislation to uh, remove the sales tax on things that are, in fact, honest weights and measures. Or, if you prefer, constitutional money, gold or silver coin. 
And this one from Missouri, again, courtesy of Jim Hoft and the Gateway Pundit. Breaking, it says, the Missouri Attorney General has now given a radical Soros-funded St. Louis County Circuit Attorney, one of the most evil in the nation, Kim Gardner, until new tomorrow to uh, get out of Dodge, or at least resign. Says the piece, Kim Gardner may be the most radical Soros-funded circuit attorney in the nation today. And that's saying quite a bit because there are a whole lot of such scumbags. One of her largest funders was George Soros in both of her elections. And it turns out they write that Kim Gardner was so intolerable, two dozen attorneys and more than one-third of the trial lawyers all left their offices when she took over in 2017. And this, they note, is a Democrat-dominated office. In August 2018, Kim Gardner announced that her attorneys, sick, will no longer accept cases from 28 different St. Louis police officers. She called it her exclusion list because they were, say it with me, racist, racist, racist. She didn't tell the officers, no piece, what they did to get on her list, but they were still being censored. There's a litany of nasty stuff she's been getting away with in this piece. I'll just hit a few of the highlights. For example, she refused to charge the killer of a 7-year-old child, despite the suspect having confessed in 2019. She lied about Governor Eric Greitens case, committed over 60 acts of misconduct there, and got away with it. In 2020, she dropped the case against the suspect who shot another man in a traffic dispute in broad daylight. She was caught lying on video, and so forth and so on. But the latest incident may have been the last straw, when she refused to put the man charged with hitting Janae Edmondson back in jail, even though he violated the conditions of his bond more than 50 times. The repeat offender then went on to hit a Tennessee volleyball player walking in St. Louis City last week. The young girl lost her legs after she was pinned to another vehicle by a driver who should never have been on the street to begin with. And Missourians, finally, are furious. The Missouri Senate leader, too, Caleb Rowden, has called on Kim Gardner to resign today. And now the Attorney General has joined the fray and given Kim Gardner the ultimatum. Said the Attorney General Andrew Bailey's statement, instead of protecting victims, Circuit Attorney Gardner is creating them. My office will do everything in its power to restore order and eliminate the chaos in St. Louis caused by Kim Gardner's neglect of her office. Unquote. Good riddance and none too soon. And also on the none too soon or what took you so long front, this piece from the Gateway Pundit entitled Confirmed. As all of us have suspected or probably even known all along, a new video, and yep, this came out pretty quickly, well, after three years of sandbagging anyway, has now proven what we already knew. Capitol Police on January 6th started firing on the innocent crowd without warning and, oh yeah, in the process violated the law, injuring a whole bunch of individuals and kicking off what was intended, it would seem, to follow thereafter. Shocking video, says the headline. This was an attack on the American people. And as we've reported all along, writes Jim Hoft, on January 6, 2021, the Capitol Police began firing rubber bullets, gas canisters, flashbang grenades on the Trump supporters gathered around the U.S. Capitol without warning. And in the hundreds of conversations we've had with January 6th attendees, political prisoners, and police abuse victims, they all say the same thing. Innocent people were attacked by police without warning. And while deep state operatives, FBI plants like Ray Epps, were breaking through barriers and leading Trump supporters to the Capitol, police were readying to fire on them indiscriminately without warning. Four Trump supporters died that day in the violence. No, you don't hear much about them. Dozens more were injured. Two Trump supporters, Kevin Greeson and Benjamin Phillips, died immediately when police started firing on the crowd without warning. And today we have proof that there were dozens, if not hundreds, of government operatives leading the crowd that day to the Capitol in what can only be described as a planned attack, or I guess you could use the term false flag, too. There's a lot in here and a pretty extensive timeline. 
It's called the Police Brutality Evidence, and it's a thread released by Investigate J6 earlier this week. Well, you bet it's not going to get the kind of George Floyd play we saw on the Waystream Media a couple of years back. And it starts at 1.13 p.m. when an officer named Thao and the D.C. Metro Police arrived on the Capitol's West Plaza. And upon arrival, Thao frantically requested Capitol Police to provide him with, quote, blast munitions to start throwing at the then mostly peaceful crowd. And he repeatedly requests blast munitions from different supervisors on the ground over the next 10 minutes. At 1.17 p.m., Thao orders Capitol PD Sniper's Nest to continue firing indiscriminately into the crowd. And then you can hear him shouting things like, let's go, effing shoot them, shoot, shoot, shoot. Here's the only part of this video I'm actually going to play. You can't really see much anyway, but you can hear the audio, and I do have to bleep it a bit. Here we go. <laughs> God damn it, we need them. Let's go, fucking shoot it. Go, shoot, shoot. Where's he at? After which, he grabs a D.C. officer's taser, then rushes to the front line and proceeds to tase a random protester who can then be heard screaming in pain. The crowd responds angrily to Thao's offensive and his use of the weapon, yelling, What the F is wrong with you guys? Blast and incendiary munitions arrive a few minutes later at 1.25 p.m., and from that time until an hour later, 2.25 p.m., Capitol and D.C. police incite the crowd with an unrelenting barrage of grenades and mortars. And note, that's not exactly the impression you got from the so-called January 6th Select Committee, is it? Protester Kevin Greeson drops dead at 1.28 p.m. Witnesses allege he was killed by one of those grenades. And on that same day at 2.02 p.m., protester Derek Vargo is pushed from a ledge on the Northwest Staircase by a Capitol PD officer as he attempts to hang a Trump flag. 2.03 p.m. saw D.C. police first use their LRAD system, long-range acoustic device, in violation of established protocols, which require them to give three separate warnings with the LRAD and an opportunity to disperse before they start using violence or munitions to clear a protest crowd. And it just goes on and on, folks, and I have no doubt that over the next weeks, if not months, hopefully, finally, we'll continue to see actual video of what really happened there after America had its own version of the Communist Revolution. So keep your eyes and ears open.